Howdy, y'all. We're going to read Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Can I read? Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. Good morning, y'all. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm the lead pastor here at Zao MKA Church, and it's so good to see you all on this beautiful, unseasonably sunny and warm Advent Sunday. We are in the middle of an Advent series called Hark, and so we've been going through all of these angelic pronouncements leading up to the birth of Jesus. And today, uh, we're in Matthew. So we've been in the Gospel of Luke, and as we talk about sometimes here, um, there are four Gospel accounts, four stories of the life and teachings of Jesus in the Bible, and they're different from one another. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And birth-wise, they're a little all over the map. Mark has no time to tell you about the birth of Jesus. Mark has a lot of other things to get to, and he wants to get to them immediately. Uh, The word immediately appears over and over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest, it's the most to the point, it's direct. It's also the earliest. So you have this sense that with Mark, he was just like trying to get it down, like as quickly as possible, so that no one forgot. With John, John is a gospel of kind of flowery language and beautiful metaphor, John's not really concerned with the details of the birth of Jesus, so there's not a whole lot of lead-up. But John has these beautiful, beautiful images of light breaking into darkness and the God who was always God becoming God in a different way on earth um, as Jesus who was with us in the beginning and will be with us forever. Luke is the one that we've been in most so far this season. It's probably the one that we're most familiar with culturally. Um, Luke is is kind of the the core story that has all the details of like the Christmas pageant. And I don't know why I've mentioned it every week, but the the Charlie Brown Christmas story, that's apparently a big touch point for me of like where I think of like good American uh, versions of of Christian storytelling um, around the birth. And those, all those details that we think of, um, the shepherds, the manger, all that is Luke. Now, we, ha- we like to borrow a couple details from Matthew. It turns out that the wise men aren't in Luke at all. Um, but none of the rest of that stuff is in Matthew. So we do this kind of mishmash of these different stories. And Luke, uh, we've, been, we've been talking about Luke and the way that Luke really centers Mary and Elizabeth and these women that are just so critical 
um, to preparing the world for Jesus and for bringing Jesus and God into the world in this, in this manner. And so with Matthew, we have a different kind of story. We basically read the entire birth narrative. Like Luke's goes on for paragraphs and paragraphs, but what we just read, which is like eight verses, that's pretty much Matthew's version. Matthew has, uh, before what we read, Matthew's got a genealogy, all the begats, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And then that paragraph, um, and then there's, there's a little add-on later that's probably actually about Jesus' early life, not so much the birth, about the wise men. And it has to do with politics and King Herod and secrets, and it's the time that Jesus becomes a refugee in Egypt. But that probably happened in, like, toddlerhood. And so this is what we have for the birth story of Matthew. So according to Matthew, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. Joseph and, Ma- and Mary are engaged but not living together. And uh-oh, Mary's pregnant. Now the text says right away, pregnant by the Holy Spirit, not throwing Mary under the bus at all here. But Joseph, you know, may or may not know that at this point. And he's trying to figure it out. She's pregnant. We're supposed to get married. <sighs> what do I do? He's righteous. He's like a good guy. He's not trying to harm Mary. Uh, And we have no idea what he's feeling. We don't know if he's feeling betrayed, disappointed, scared for his own future, because he had a path laid out for him, he thought. And everything's kind of up in the air now. And this person he thought he was going to spend the rest of his life with just did something that, that totally contradicts that. And so the life that he had planned for himself It's not going to work now. So he's got to figure out what to do. So trying to be a good, upstanding guy, he's like, I'm just going to like quietly disentangle myself from this person and whatever mess she got herself into and and try not to make a big deal about it. Try and not drag her name. You know, I'm just going to be in high road, whatever. And Joseph is is like just finally resolute in that. Like, okay, I got it. This is what I'm going to do. And he goes to sleep. And in the night... God sends an angel to go speak to him. And so if any of you uh, have been here in weeks previous, you know the first thing that the angel said to him was, do not be afraid. It is the key tagline of any angelic uh, appearance, do not be afraid. Although this angel goes straight into, don't be afraid to marry Mary. Don't be afraid to follow through with your commitment to, to wed yourself to this person. Uh, because she indeed is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And God has, has a plan for all of this. God is invested in this. And so, uh, so now we have this angel involved trying to help Joseph make a decision. And, and giving Joseph some specific direction. Now, now we have to understand why it was so important um, that Mary not be pregnant in the first place. Uh, there's, there's certainly some concepts here about fidelity and betrayal, right? Um, if she had been unfaithful, that, that may have been heartbreaking to Joseph. But culturally, there were other reasons at play here as well, which is that culturally, for a man trying to form a family, you have to know that your kids are yours because they, they practiced kind of family lineage in this culture 
um, through the father's line. It was a patrilineal system that said father to father to father. And actually, like, if you look in genealogies in the, uh, in the scriptures, almost all of them are like dude begets dude begets dude, which is a little weird that all the dudes are doing the begetting. Seems like there's some people missing in this process. And that's the, the culture that the, the, this story takes place in, this, this very patriarchal culture that, that forgets women and writes them out of the story altogether. Which means that if you want your family to participate in history, if you want your family to go on and on, you have to know the male line. And you have to know the genetic kind of component of like the men in your family. And the only way to do that is to control the bodies of women. Matrilineal uh, tracking is a lot easier. It's a little bit clearer who came out of whose body directly. You would think that we would just default to that. That would be a much easier and more direct system. But that doesn't fly in patriarchy where women are systematically devalued. And so in this moment in time, in this moment in history, we uh, are in a space where women are not valued enough to carry the line. And so Joseph's patriarchal culture demanded that he marry a virgin, that Mary be a virgin so that everyone could know that it was his child. And, and that was so important for inheritance and property and the way that the economy worked, and also associated with that, this kind of sense of honor. There wasn't an understanding that Joseph could be a dad to kids who may not share his genetic material. There wasn't an understanding that those kids could be, you know, that, that Joseph could have a son that was his kid, raised by him, blessed by him, but not sharing his genetic material. And the emphasis on the father's line here and the way that men are so centered in this story and the way that Mary's uh, virginity uh, seems so important to Joseph being wed to her makes me wonder a little bit about our obsession with Mary's virginity. That it's so important to us that Mary was a virgin to prove that it was God's kid. Are we still doing the same thing? Are we still obsessing with this young woman's body and her right and her autonomy? Because we say the only way we can know that, you're, that you are legit, that your kid is legit, is if you have this virgin status? Why is it so important to us that when God says, this is my son, we have to verify it by saying, okay, but the girl was pure before that, right? And so we have these replicating waves of patriarchy in our story and in our culture. But God isn't really on the same tip we are about that because God doesn't care about the patrilineal order. And in fact, God completely disrupts it because this kid is not biologically connected to Joseph. And all of the genealogies we have that go dude begets dude begets dude become a little confusing when we have this line of dozens of men and then it says, Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, who bore Jesus. And so God is coming in here and interrupting the assumptions of this culture. 
that lineage comes from only the powerful, only the men. And in fact, in this genealogy in Matthew, we didn't read it because it's very boring, but I'm telling you, it's also super cool if you know the details because this genealogy also messes with that. You have all of these begets, but somehow five times in the genealogy of Matthew, women are listed. And that's just unheard of. That's just not how it goes down. So who are these women? Well, one of them is Mary. One of them is Bathsheba, who is listed as Uriah's wife. But you also have Rahab and Ruth. You have these folks who are... um, who are really, really unexpected in this line. And the reason, first off, is because they're women. But in addition to that, there are many other unusual things. Some of them are Gentiles, non-Jewish people. That's super weird. Some of them are sex workers, which is not common or understood to be like a very highly valued profession, way to get, get through life. And some of them were Moabites. Okay, I'll catch you up. Moabites were people from Moab. And Moab was a, was a foreign place. Um, and, and we know that at the time, a lot of Israel's culture was built around identifying itself kind of against others. Typical of not just Israel, we'll say. We'll say that's all of us. Like a lot of our culture is built as us versus them. And one of the ways that this happened through the Hebrew experience and the Hebrew scriptures was... Um, was that they, there would be specific other groups and tribes that would be called out as especially bad. In Deuteronomy, in our holy text, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. It's in Deuteronomy 23. And it actually goes on to say, even, even if you kind of dilute that, Ten generations from now, if you have Moabite in your family lineage, you are not allowed to come to church That is some messed up stuff. And can I just remind you that we have a pattern of repeating the mistakes of our history. That we have said before, you are not allowed. Your lineage, your identity, your love, your history doesn't allow you to come into here and for generations carry that shame and be excluded. So is that coming from God? That's in our holy scriptures. We have held that up, these exclusions and these distances. And yet here's God saying, I'm going to come into the world through a lineage of a Moabite. Ruth, she's really cool. She actually gets a whole book in the Bible. And so all the assumptions that we have about what qualifies as holy and sacred, who has a right to worship, are turned on their head as the God of the universe comes in through a lineage of those who have been cast out of church. So we have this beautiful, powerful genealogy, this lineage of Jesus that is not patriarchal, that is not insular, that doesn't abide by the rules of the temple. And, And we have this gorgeous inbreaking of the Spirit of God. And so while the culture around us may be obsessed with who has the right and who is the most holy, Who has the most privilege? 
while Matthew himself, as he's writing this text, may get so distracted to be like, well, what is Joe thinking about all of this? And to to shift the focus to men, to shift the focus to the most powerful in this tiny, not very powerful family unit. God is inbreaking into the world through the people at the margins, through the people whose voices have not been heard. Because that is who God trusts to speak truth and love and power and liberation. So God chooses Mary. Now that doesn't mean that Joseph has no part in this. God has chosen Joseph as well. And so in this dream, when the angel comes to Joseph, God communicates through this angel to Joseph, I want you in on this too. This person I've called you to be with, don't walk away from her now. This is your son too. He calls Joseph to name Jesus. And naming has a really important and powerful role. It communicates a lot about relationship here. Back in our earliest stories, in Genesis, when when God is creating the world, and God creates the first human being, the Adam, we call, we call that person Adam a lot. But when that first human being, the Adam, is there, God is creating and creating animals and, and you know, birds and all these kinds of creatures. And God says to the Adam, you name them. You name all of these creatures. And that, that communicates this relationship of, uh, sometimes we call it stewardship. But it's, it's one of caring. One of Um, one of love that says you are here to name this creature and you have a responsibility to it now to care for it to make sure that it grows and flourishes and occupies the whole earth with its beauty that's the task we were given as human beings to care for the world around us not a task that we always do very well but a task that we were given to name the things that we could see and to love them And so here in this moment when Joseph says, I have nothing to do with this mess that Mary has gotten herself into, and I'm just going to quietly walk away. God comes to Joseph in a dream and says, no, name that child. Raise him. Love him. And in this way, I am with you because you will name him that I am with you. You will name him according to the prophecies in the scriptures that you love that say that God will come in the form of a child, God with us. And so we have Joseph at a crossroads, ready to make a choice. Do I quietly disentangle myself from this mess? Or do I believe God, believe Mary and this story that sounds wild, Do I trust God who has put God's trust in Mary? Do I walk away from the secure life that I would have, the privileges that I would have, and throw my lot in with a young woman that no one is going to believe? And Joseph says yes. Now, in Advent, there are traditionally four themes Joy, peace, hope, and love. 
This week is love week. And it would be kind of a weird, you know, at first glance, this is a strange text to pick for love, right? Because we think of love sometimes as this kind of overflowing feeling of, of connection. And it can be, and it should be, and it's wonderful when it is. But love is also the choices that we make to be with one another. The choices that we make to throw in with one another. We see God's love for us in a way that we will celebrate gloriously in a couple of days. Cameron mentioned that that the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, the coming of God to earth just to be with us is the greatest act of solidarity that we know. And so we will celebrate that. But now, in the days leading up, when we know God is coming, we hope God is coming, we trust that God is coming, how do we love one another? If God's love for us is solidarity that comes to us even in the midst of pain and joy and complication, that says, I'm throwing my lot in with you all, then our love for one another is very much the same. Love means throwing down with one another. Love means coming to one another in times of crisis and trouble. Love means not quietly disentangling ourselves when it's hard. Love means trusting the folks that society has said are not trustworthy because those are the folks that God has entrusted to break into the world through. Love is Jesus coming to the earth through Mary. Mary saying, yes, And Joseph saying, okay, I'll come too. And this is difficult for us to understand in a world that says that Jesus is kind of the main thing here. It's difficult for us to understand our role. Because yes, Jesus will grow up, and Jesus will teach, and Jesus will die, and Jesus will come back and defeat death and bring life to us all. But what do we do in the midst of that? Surely we pause and we marvel. We sit in gratitude and awe. And also, we listen for the ways that God is calling us to express that love. Where are we called? Not to quietly step back from the mess but to dive face first into it and say, yes, God has called me too. Because the God with us shows up among us. The God who is with us has called us to be with one another. Love breaks in. Love doesn't abandon. Love chooses the more difficult path. Now, love must be mutual. Love must be kind. And we learn as the scriptures go on and we have all the letters to the churches that love is really complicated and very difficult. And so I'm not trying to minimize that in any way. But love is an invitation into perhaps a more difficult journey. But one that is with. Because our God, Emmanuel, is God with us. And we are called to be with one another. There are so many times in our history as people that we've tried to separate humanity from God. We do this over and over again. It's a pattern of ours. And one of the times that we tried to do this was actually in an early monastic tradition. 
So some of us know about like monks and um, and how there are religious people who will like live together, kind of set apart from from the world. Well, before they had those groups of people, there were just hermits, just people who would live by themselves. Now, eventually that got a little bit untenable because you'd have hermits living in all these like nooks and crannies that would depend on the people around them to bring them food and that kind of a thing. Um, And so eventually those hermits started kind of living together, hermiting together, which is a little bit contradictory. And so, so you had this tradition of monks who were trying not to really just like block each other out so that they could find God. But as they were doing this, some people started to get on this tip of like, maybe we don't find God apart from one another. And there was this guy, the head of, of a particular group. Um, his name was Dorotheus. He was from Gaza. And Dorotheus of Gaza had an idea that, that maybe they had gotten this hermitage thing wrong, this solitude thing a little wrong. And so he drew this diagram. I believe we have it. Do we have it? Great. So there's, there's a little picture of Dorotheus being very monk-like. So he drew this so it looks like wheels, like, a, like spokes in a wheel, right? And in some of his diagrams, he actually has arrows pointing towards the center. There's another depiction of it. And so the idea that Dorotheus had was that if God is at the center of this diagram, and we are all longing to be toward God, then as we move toward God, we necessarily move toward one another. And that those who are on the path to God, those who are moving toward God, if we move toward them, we move toward God. This is an image that I hold in my heart, especially on those days when I am feeling most introverted and most likely to seclude myself. That yes, there are times when we need solitude and space and distance. And also, our God is Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us in and through one another. God came to be with Joseph through Mary. God came to be with Mary in part through Joseph. And God invites us to be in this messy situation, these difficulties, even if we face different challenges. Mary's challenges in bringing Jesus into the world are very different than Joseph's. And the stakes are higher for her. But Joseph has a choice to come alongside her, raise the stakes for himself, to give up sacrificially in order to be with her and therefore with God. God is the God who comes to be with us. And we are the people who are with one another. This invitation, this course correction, away from, uh, from solitude, away from seclusion, is also a course correction from the systems of oppression in the world that keep us layered, that keep us at a distance. God's breaking in and disrupting patriarchy is God's invitation for men to be with those who are not at the top. It is an invitation for those who have been excluded, not only to be lifted up, but also to learn trust with those folks who had betrayed them, 
to say they are invited back and we are invited to do this together. And in this way, the Holy Family is made up of people with very different vulnerabilities, very different types of oppression. This infant born into poverty in the manger, this young girl whose body is scrutinized, and this man, Joseph, who could walk away and doesn't. To trust the way God works in the world is to trust the people that God works through. And so today, I invite you to love as an act of trust, as a leap of faith, not only in God, who is with us, but in God who is with us through one another. Love your neighbor. Love them boldly. Sacrifice and trust in order to do so. This is the invitation of the birth of Jesus in Matthew. Will you pray with me? God of the unexpected, Disrupt our systems of power. Teach us a new way of seeing you in one another, not in those high and lofty places, but in the places you most treasure, the mundane, the marginalized. God, be with us and teach us what it means to be with you by being with one another. Amen.